Uh, Father, we thank you that you know all of our ailments and infirmities. In Jesus, one day you will take them all. And by, the, our, by your stripes, we are healed. We will be healed. It's ultimate atonement, Lord God, not only the soul, the spirit, but also the body. And we thank you, Lord, that that is coming when Jesus returns. And so, Lord, we lift up those who are ill today, Rebecca, Susan, those who are struggling, Lord, in their health, like Alex. And, Lord, we pray that you would help uh, them. We pray for Amber's son, Lord, who's ill today as well. We thank you that you are working all things together for good, that even in those maladies, you will use them for your glory. Please, Lord, help them in their infirmities. And, Lord Jesus, you came not only to teach us, you came also to save us, but you came also, Lord, in, uh, in the Gospels, you came to heal people. And that was your will, and that was your desire. And as you met those who were ill, you healed some. Others were kept in illness. Lord, we know that you have an ultimate purpose and will for each one of us. So we trust, Lord God, that you're working out your purposes in their lives. Use it, Lord, for your glory, for the testimony, but also, Lord, as a witnessing to the world that our God cares for us, and loves us, and he forgives. So, Lord, today as we study more of your word, may we remind it, Lord, of the ultimate sickness, sin, and the ultimate revelation that Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. And we thank you for that revelation. We thank you that as we open your word, Lord, today there's great accountability. And Lord, and I feel it myself personally to stand before my brothers and sisters and know that when we talk about sin, that we are the most guilty of all of us, Lord. Our personal sins, you know all together, Lord. And I feel very much in line with hypocrisy because we ought to preach and we ought to preach against sin, Lord, but we're not to be guilty of it ourselves. So, Lord, help us. We're not sufficient in any of these things, Lord. Only you are. So we ask you for your provision, the Holy Spirit, to make us holy, to make us good like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's talk about Romans. Chapter 1 through 3 has been all about sin, and we're not going to get through Romans chapter 3 today. It's about 15 pages of notes, but I'm not going to read them all. As I said before, blessed is the preacher who knows what to leave off. That's probably the greatest blessing any preacher could know, what not to include. But nonetheless, Paul is talking about sin, and he's talking about wrath. Look at chapter 2, verse 5, very quickly. Chapter 2, verse 5, we're not, that's not our text today, but it gives you the flavor of what Paul has been dealing with. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each man according to his deeds. He's speaking of the wrath that is going to be revealed not only in the day of the Lord, when the Lord comes and he judges the world, but also uh, the judgment of every man will be uh, when they stand before God to give an account for their sin. And that the Bible calls the wrath of God against sin. And this is appointed to every man, once to die and then to judgment. This is what the Bible speaks of. And so the Bible is very clear, and Paul is making it very clear, that when people are of their stubbornness and out of their willingness to claim to be a good person on their own and righteousness, self-righteousness on their own and reject the gift of God, they become unrepentant and stubborn in thinking that they have actually have done good. 
And therefore, there's no need for judgment. There's no need for repentance because they're a good person. And Paul has been dealing with that in chapter 2. Of course, the standard that God has is good and righteousness. If you do good and you're righteous, then you can enter in. Of course, the definition that the Bible gives for good and righteousness is good and righteous continuously all the time. Because people would say, I'm a good person. But they have their definition in an incorrect way, right? Because they're good in comparison to who? That's the question. You're good in comparison to who? Maybe comparison to me, you might be a really good person. Uh, but in comparison to God and Jesus, that's the standard that God allows. It's a standard, the only thing that God ever allows is to be compared to Jesus. And that's why it's called continuously to do good, 24-7. And your attitude and your character is to be good and righteous all the time. Well, as we saw last week, none of us are. None of us could attain that. And so this is what would bring the wrath of God. This is what would bring the wrath of God. And that's why the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, that God wants to make people righteous. But it also reveals first the wrath of God. And you can't have good news unless you have bad news. How can you convince a person who is ill to have a surgery if they really don't think that they're sick? You ever had a major surgery? Anybody here had a major, 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 major surgery? All right. All right. Somebody had to explain to you, there's something wrong. If I came to you and you felt great and you said, you know what, you need surgery. You'd be like, why? <laughs> I actually feel really well. I, there's nothing wrong with me. If I, well, I don't want to tell you and you'd be offended if I told you you had cancer. Well, how would you be offended if I had cancer? I need to go into surgery now. Well, we, a lot of times we feel that way or many people don't want to tell the bad news. And they just want to tell you good news. Well, it's like telling somebody you need surgery without ever telling them what's wrong with them. If you don't tell them what's wrong with them, they'll never have surgery. They'll be like, you're crazy. You want me to cut, up, cut myself open for what? There's nothing wrong with me. Gospel is bad news first. The bad news is unless you are continuously right, uh, right and good all the time, you will face the judgment of God. Well, Pastor, none of us in this room would do it. If I were to go down the list of Romans 1, we would all have to be with our mouth closed and our fingers pointing to ourselves, right? If we were honest about ourselves. But the Bible says there is another way that God makes people right. And that is through his righteousness given to people that are unrighteous. But before he gets to that, chapter 3, uh, I think it's verse 21, yeah. Before he gets to that, we have to deal with verse 17 or verse 18. Yeah, verse 17, sorry, of chapter 2. To the end of chapter 3, verse 20, that's what we're going to end today, uh, because it is one context. There's a chapter division in it, and sometimes that gets in the way. It's like a hurdle. We just have to jump over that hurdle in your mind to say chapter 3 doesn't begin a new thought or a new chapter. It, begins, it continues the same thought. So let's read verse 17 of chapter 2. But if you bear the name Jew... And rely upon the law and boast in God. And we know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are, conf uh, are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish and the teacher of the immature, having uh, in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach, should you not, uh, you who preach that no one should steal, do you steal? You say that no one should commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? 
You boast in the law through the breaking of the law. Do you not dishonor God? They, for the name of God, is blasphemy among the non-believers because of you, just as it is written. So amazing thing, Paul is dealing with something of sin, and he's going to deal with something that the Jew, and you see the word there, the Jew? It's quite interesting. He is going to change. I'm going to skip one here. He's going to skip to the Jews very quickly because he's been dealing with Gentiles in chapter 1, the pagans. He began to talk about, remember they? Remember that pronoun, they? And we love to talk about them and they, right? Because they have the issue. They're the bad drivers, right? They're the ones who don't follow the law, correct, the, the traffic law. They're the ones that are whatever, they. But Paul switches in chapter 2 to you. Therefore, it is not a telescope to look at them. It is a microscope to look at you. He begins to talk about you, but then he switches back to, I'm sorry, he doesn't switch back. He goes to we. So when you're doing a Bible study, these are very, very important. This is just a tool and a tip that you can get to your, in your own Bible study. Look at pronouns. Very important. They're not there to kind of confuse you. The Holy Spirit, Spirit put them there so you can know who's he talking about. Is he talking about them? Because we love that. I don't like when the Bible says you because it deals with me personally <laughs> And we tend to kind of want to talk about them. But then when it talks about we, especially Paul, he's dealing with himself as a Jew. He is a Jew of the Jews. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrew. And he knew the attitude in the heart of the Jewish people because he's one of them. And he was a Pharisee, so he was at the highest level of religiosity within the Jewish community. He was a religious Jew. And according to Paul, the law, the external keeping of the law, he was blameless. Meaning you could look at Paul and say, man, that guy's good. If anybody deserves to go to heaven, it's him. <laughs> it's, it was Paul. He worked at it. He was a professional do-gooder. And maybe you've met people like that. Professional do-gooders that by their own efforts and, and, and action, they seemingly, externally, seem to be on the right road to heaven, or on the right road to eternal life. Um, have you ever heard of this term, diplomatic immunity? Remember that term, diplomatic immunity? Diplomatic immunity meaning that it means basically that you can do whatever you want. You're above the law. If you're like a diplomat in another country, you can actually get away with things that normal citizens can't. And so there's been major, major scandals where diplomats' sons and dip, or even diplomats themselves have been caught with drugs and murder people, but they can't prosecute them because they claim diplomatic immunity, meaning that they're sort of above the law and uh, they cannot bring any charges against them. Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Diplomatic immunity. But what's interesting about that is the Jews, according to Paul, claim a diplomatic immunity toward the law, meaning that because it's theirs, I should not be guilty of breaking the law since it's ours. God gave it to us, so you should not hold us guilty over that. And there are people who behave that way, by the way, especially in Christian churches, or because they're Christians, then really what they do is really not that bad. It's them who have the problem, not me, right? And so diplomatic community, keep that in mind because Paul is going to be dealing with, because he is going to talk about the Jews. It's quite interesting. The pagans, there's Gentiles, basically us in chapter one, he's moving on to the Jews, but he doesn't say those Jews, right? He says... We, we Jews, we are like this. What are we like? Well, let's read again. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, 
This is the very diplomatic community. Number one, the Jews have a religious pride, right? Religious pride that they were the ones appointed to carry God's law. They were to appointed by God to receive it and appointed by God to give it away to other people. But like any diplomatic community, as you can tell, they begin to think that they're above what they actually received. It's for them, right? Oh, I'm going to give you the law. <laughs> you ought to do these things. They're actually good. I'm going to teach you how to, how to do those things. But don't expect me to do it. Now, that's not the attitude verbally, but it's the attitude nonetheless. The Jews were appointed the law and his will, verse 18, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. There is a superiority complex that comes from being a Jew. It's a natural feeling. My family's married to a Jewish family. It's a natural feeling. It's a natural superiority complex. Why? They have had the law way before I did. Way before anybody that, you know, wherever you came from, if you're Swedish, Norwegian, Viking, Eskimo, Venezuela, whatever, Mexico, El Salvador, right? Nicaragua, especially us, we need it. Uh, there is a special superiority complex in which they have had the law way before any of our ancestors ever did. So they know about God way before you did. They know about God before your grandpa, your grandparents did and your great-great-grandparents did. They've had the law since the time God gave it to Moses. So they, there's this, this incredible feeling of we belong to God. See, we're so special. God gave it to us. And because of that superiority, they become very unpopular around the world. In fact, the term Jew has become a hiss and a byword in many, many circles. In fact, we've had people in our church that were anti-Semitic, not knowingly, that were seemingly Christians, but they were really harbor resentment and feelings against the Jews. It was quite shocking to find those out. They're no longer here for obvious reasons, but the reality was that there is this sort of animosity. Now, the prof there are prophecies in the Bible that because of the rejection of God and Jesus, they would become a reproach. That is true. But the fact that there is anti-Semitism, hardcore anti-Semitism, even in the church, uh, there is something to say that it is, it is not good and it's demonic. And that will be shown more and more in the last days where Jews will be persecuted even more. But here is a superiority complex where the world looks at the Jews and says, what makes you so special? What makes you the teacher? Well, they say, because we have the law. God gave it to us. We know his will, verse 18. We know the things that are approved of the law. We know because we're instructed by it. And so they have become very unpopular. In fact, in the Roman Empire, they were just as unpopular. One, Rome gave them tax exemptions because they paid a temple tax. Rome said, well, you don't have to pay the other tax. And the other Gentiles were like, what makes them so special? And then they couldn't serve in the Roman army because they kept the Sabbath. So they were kept from serving in the Roman army. So if you were not a Jew, you would go, I have to pay taxes, and I have to serve in the military, and those guys don't. And that was the time of Paul. They had legal, they had legal liberties that other nations didn't have. And so that led to their pride. And Paul was just in the middle of that, wasn't he? He was just as proud and just as we're so good. We're God, God gave him to us, right? And so there's two things that the Jewish people take pride in. Number one is the law and the commandments. Number two, Paul's going to deal with it later, verse 25, a brand that was put on their male, on the male children. There was a brand put on them that they were select 
of God, and they were purposed by God to be his own special people. They were separated unto God. So they had the law, and they had a brand, circumcision. Upon Jewish males, this was their boasting. This was their pride. And so one of the things they said is because they have the law, there were a guide. Now, this existed before Romans was written. There were a guide to the blind. There were light to darkness, people that lived in darkness. There were going to be a light. They were correctors of fools, the Jewish people would say. And they were to teach the children. Children meaning those immature Gentiles, right? That's what they call themselves. And Paul deals with that, seemingly, uh, straight out of the culture of the back of the time, right? Because look what he says. He says, we are confident in the law that you yourself are a guide to the blind. That's what the Jews actually thought of the first century, that they were a guide to the blind. In fact, there was a book written by a rabbi much later in the Middle Ages called The Guide to the Perplexed. It was similarly the same thing, that they were going to guide people through a dark part of their lives. A light to those who are in darkness. That's straight out of what they thought. A corrector of the fools. Eh? And a teacher to the immature, to the children. This is what they believe they were. Now, unbelievably enough, people that have this resentment toward the Jews, there was an English poet who wrote this line. It was quite interesting. He says, how odd of God to have chosen the Jews. How odd of God to chose the Jews. And then later, another English poet came later, and he added another line to that seemingly famous poem, and he says, well, odder still, more odd, those who choose the Jewish God but detest the Jews. Right? Did you hear that? The first poet said, how odd of God to choose the Jews. It is odd, isn't it? Out of everybody, out of all nations, he chose the Jewish people. But even still more odd is those who claim to know the Jewish God and yet spurn the Jews. How odd is it for anti-Semitism in the Christian church to worship a Jewish God, a Jewish Messiah, have a Jewish book, the New Testament, Old Testament, and yet say to the Jews, you don't matter anymore. How odd is it? We accept the Jewish faith, we accept the Jewish book, we accept the Jewish Messiah, yet we have nothing to do with the Jews. That's the odd thing, isn't it? But it came from this idea that the Jews had this superiority complex, and they were privileged. They were so privileged that, so much so, that because they're privileged, they didn't think that they had to continue doing the law. They were fascinated enough to know it and point it out to people. This is how you ought to live. But they wanted no business doing it. They wanted no business doing it. And Paul was very much in the same way, the hypocrisy. The hypocrisy of those who know a lot and yet fail to do the very basic of what they believe. Well, it's the same thing. When people looked at the Jews, they said, hmm, they know a lot, but boy, they don't practice it. How seemingly is it for Christians today that you claim to be a Christian? As soon as you claim to be Christians, all eyes are on you. Isn't that work? That worked for a long time in corporate America. You're a Christian? You know, you're not ashamed of it? Okay, eyes on you. You take your lunch on time, you come back on time. You take your break on time, you come back on time. You end up talking at the water cooler. You end up in cheesemas and gossip and things like that around the office. Is that, they look at you. They, Ooh, it's supposed to be a Christian, right? And uh, you fall, you fail, and you've got this microscope on you. Is it right? The answer is, yeah, it is right. It is right to have an expectation that you claim to know the God of righteousness and truth and light and goodness. And if you don't behave like that, there is a tremendous disparity, isn't there? 
And I know what people are going to say, Pastor, but we're not perfect. I said, nobody claimed to be perfect. But they claimed to be right. You need to be right. And that's what the Jews were supposed to be. They were supposed to be right. They weren't supposed to be perfect. They were supposed to be right and on the road of righteousness. But they decided not to do that. Now, I'm going to present to you this guy. His name is Josephus, Flavius Josephus. And he said, what's this have to do with the study? Very much so. He lived in the first century, and he was a historian. Lots of good things Josephus wrote. You should read it just to get the history, War of the Jews, things like that. Explains a lot of the time of Jesus because he wrote around the same time. Explains a lot about the apostles. He even wrote about Jesus. So a secular source, a non-Christian source that deals with the Bible in its background, even to the New Testament. He wrote this during the first temple period, or the, the first century, second temple, he wrote that the Jews were notorious for this. When it came to money, Josephus says, they were notorious thieves. He was a Jew. Mind you, he was a Jew. They knew the commandment, but they used other methods to get around the commandments and became thieves. He wrote this, Jews in Rome were known for their adultery. They were known for the adultery and remarriages all the time, breakdowns of illegal relationships, and yet they were teaching the Romans they had not to divorce their wives. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? You just kind of see that in the Christian church. Josephus wrote this in AD 19. AD 19, four Jews, famous Jews, went to a Roman lady, a widow, and they got a hold of her money to convince her to help with the temple. And this Roman lady was kind of fond of the Jewish people and says, I'm going to send you some money to the, to the temple, quite a bit of money. No one saw a penny of it. Those four Jews ended up running away with the money. Even so, Tiberius, the Roman Caesar, got a hold of this, and he said, this is not right, and he kicked all the Jews out of Rome for a time. But this was happening at the time of Paul. This was happening at the time of Jesus. You can understand why Jesus would tell the Pharisees, you don't lift a finger, but you want everybody else to do it. And yet you make a disciple and you make him twice as son as hell as you are because you don't do it and you expect everybody else to do it. And you say, those people are cursed. Those people are cursed of the law, they said. Or the Pharisee used to say, of people that were not Pharisees. Well, Paul was dealing with the same thing. He's talking to Christians in the church in Rome who are both Jew and Gentiles, mainly Gentiles, but he's dealing with the problem of the Jew and the Gentile relationship. Remember from our first study, and we don't want to get back too much into that, is Paul is making a case that is going to crescendo or peak at Romans 9 through 11. And I told you what I believe. The reason why Rome, Romans, the book of Romans was written was to deal with Romans 9 through 11. I know that goes against many other people's commentators and commentaries and things like that, and that's fine, but I do believe that the peak of Romans is 9 through 11 to deal with the issue of what is going to happen to the Jews. What's the point? What's the end? Where's this going? And it deals with prophecy, and it deals with the return of Jesus. And we can't wait to get to that point, but he's laying down a foundation. What's the purpose of being a Jew? Now that Jesus has come, is there any advantages or disadvantages? Uh, is being a Jew going to help me in the day of wrath? Remember, we're talking about wrath, the day of judgment. Is this going to help me? Well, they have the law. Surely it would help, wouldn't it? They know. They know what is right. They, they ought to do it. It surely should help them. It only helps them if what? If you do it. It only helps you if you do it. Knowing it, knowing it 
will not help you one iota. That's Paul's point. Knowing will not help you. You know a lot. Doing it will do it. And remember in the Bible, you're justified by faith, but you are judged by what you do. You're justified by faith. Praise God, isn't that amazing? We take it for granted. All of us should have been saying, amen, if we knew the gravity of what is required. Unless God said you could be made righteous through faith. All of us should just be busting to a song. Christian, get up here. Let's sing a song because that is worthy of singing. That you're justified by faith. No other religion, if you call Christianity religion, will ever claim that. They'll just say, you have to justify what you do. But you are judged by what you do, the Bible says. And you will be judged. And this is one of the things that I told you to highlight last week. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, the word do, doing, or done. It's a common theme throughout the chapter 2 and 3. Because Paul is making a case. You can know a lot. You can do a lot of rituals. But unless you do what you know is right, you are going to face the day of judgment, the day of wrath. Now let's continue. Paul says in verse 21, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach, should you not, uh, that you shouldn't steal? Do you steal? That kind of brought home to me, right? Because uh, I'm preaching now. And it sort of gave me this, this real uneasy feeling reading this chapter and getting ready for tonight or today. It'll be tonight before we leave. Uh, that you, that, that, that Lord, make me right in your sight to seek the praises of God, not of men. Because I can look up here very pious and very religious and go, but is he, he's wearing a nice shirt. He looks very godly and he looks like a Christian. He does look like a Christian. I don't know what a Christian looks like. I know what Christian looks like, but I don't know what a Christian looks like, right? But do I look like a Christian? Well, you have a nice shirt, and you're, it's, I didn't even press it, so I can't say it's press. Uh, you know, but you look nice up there. That, that, you know, the praises of men. Oh, he speaks very well. He's very eloquent. I'm not, but some people could say he's very eloquent. He must be a Christian. Look, he convinced me. Well, if somebody can convince you into something, somebody can convince you out of something. You need to be convinced yourself. That the word of God is true, and this is who you are before the Lord. And so I thought about this, and I said, man, Lord, I preach, not, who shall not steal. Do I steal? Right? We who share the gospel, we who go into uh, areas where we point people that there's a wrong way. Do we practice the very things that we're telling people not to do? And remember, I told you the same thing. I said, well, I, pastor, adultery, I don't do that. Yeah, practically you don't. I understand that. But do you enjoy movies that glorify? Do you enjoy movies that sort of bring it up to the level where you go, ooh, that's a kind of steamy relationship. I wish those two would get together. And there are movies like that where people kind of like cheer on. Oh, the, the hero needs to get that girl. But that girl's married to another person. Oh, it doesn't matter because it's so romantic that they end up together. You know? Oh, brother, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and I'm not just picking on ladies. I'm just saying that that is, you know, or, or guys can go, man, he hooked up with that girl. That's neat. That's cool. It's like, no, it's not cool. Because you're glorifying adultery, immorality. Okay, you don't agree that you should commit adultery, but do you approve of it? That's the point, right? The point that Paul says, look at the microscope in your own heart and say, what's worse than a pagan sinning? A Jew sinning because he knows the law. What's worse than a Jew sinning? A Christian who sins. Why? Not only do we have the law of the Old Testament, we have the New Testament revelation of Jesus, God in Christ, and the Holy Spirit seemingly in us, right? Supposed to be in us. 
guiding us, leading us, teaching us, correcting us, convicting us, drawing us to Christ, and you keep on sinning, that, my friend, is worse than a Jew who knows the law. Because a Jew knows the law in an external way and go, yep, that's what it says, but I don't do it. A Christian knows the law, sees it, it's supposed to be in them, and then goes on to sin. What is that? Big problems, isn't it? What's worse than a pagan sinning? A Jew sinning. What's worse than a Jew sinning? A Christian, whether Jew or Gentile, a Christian who sins and continues in sin, right? I'm speaking for myself. Verse 20, where are we at? 23. You who boast in the law, you break the law. Do you dishonor God? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, you dishonor God. For the name of God is blaspheme among non-believers because of you, as it is written, indeed. Their pride led them to, their pride and arrogance that they wouldn't have to keep the law. They actually led them to um, blaspheme God. God was blasphemed among the Gentiles and among unbelievers. And this is for us as well, to know that that's a Christian. He just left his wife. That's a Christian. He just left her husband. That's a Christian. Look how she talks to her husband. That's a Christian. Look how he loves his wife or lack thereof, right? That's the point. How can, how can they claim that this is a God of love and truth and, and yet they dishonor each other, they backbite each other, and gossip about each other, and are harsh to each other? How can that be, ever be a God of love and mercy and compassion? They don't even show it to themselves. I'm out of here. Have a good day. I don't want to be a Christian. If that's a Christian, keep it. That's the attitude that people had toward the Jews. You're telling me that Yahweh is the light and you're supposed to show the light, but you live in darkness? How's that true? How's that, how can that be of any good to anybody? It's not. Therefore, Paul says, knowing about the law without doing it won't do you any good in the day of judgment. To the Jew. Verse 25. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. So now we get to the other boasting. Jews were scattered among the nations, and they kept three things that kept their identity all the time. Anybody know those three things? Three important ones. There's other ones, but three major ones. This is one of them. Anybody? Sabbath, Sabbath keeping, they were separate. They kept their Jewish identity, even in the diaspora, even in the nations. And what was the other one? Food. They were different, weren't they? Couldn't bring them to uh, tacos de carnitas or anything like that. You couldn't convince them out of it. What's wrong with you? You, you can't eat that? No. Nope. Separated unto God. And they kept that. And they kept that as an identity, even among the nations, even among the Gentiles. They were separated as a... Strange people. They don't come out on Saturday, and they don't eat things that we normally eat. And their kids are taken right to the hospital after they're born, and they're circumcised, and they have this celebration. They have this ritual. Very different, isn't it? And so this Paul is speaking about the circumcision, which was a big topic of the day. Later on in the epistles, uh, well, actually earlier on in the epistles, Galatians, it was a big issue in the book of Acts, big issue about the circumcision, because it was a, a way to identify the Jews. This is operation, this operation in a Jewish male that was a brand, that they were a special people, a separated people, and they were committed to keeping God's word. That's what it meant, this brand upon Jewish males, that they were separated to keep God's law. Yeah, they got them in trouble, by the way, through all history. The Nazis would... Uh, would have uh, uh, other ways to check if they were Jews. And the way to check they were, if they were Jews, drop your pants. And they would verify if they were Jews or not. So this brand wasn't necessarily 
a good thing sometimes. It actually got them to a lot of trouble because it meant that they were a Jewish people. They were meant to be a special people. And so that was the reality of it. But Paul says, look, you, you are marked. Yes, it's true. You've had a ceremony. Yes, it's true. You go back to Abraham. Yes, it's true. However, if you practice the law, verse 25, if your circumcision is of value, only if you practice the law. So having a symbol that you keep the law, but you don't do it, doesn't do any good to you. Symbolism is good. It means that it represents who you are. It represents who you are inside. It's just a symbol. It's an outward symbol. And the reality is, if it's not real, if it's just a symbol and you don't do it, it doesn't really do anything. It's like having a badge, right? What does the badge stand for? The badge, circumcision badge, stands for that I am God's person, I'm God's people, separated unto God to keep his word, to be holy, to be separated. And there was this, this mark, right, that you cut off the flesh. There was something wrong with us being born, as we were, and the, there's a flesh cutting and a removal. So that person is now marked for the glory of God. But if that person goes out <laughs> and violates everything that God says not to do, right, violates that, God says, don't do that, and they keep violating, does the circumcision or the brand or the identity mean anything anymore? Absolutely not. And this is what it says in verse 26. If therefore the uncircumcised, uh, the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Meaning this, the Gentile who does, who's not branded, who's not a Jew, he does what God says. Doesn't that mean that he's actually circumcised? Because Paul is dealing with something spiritual, verse 27. And he will not be in, will not he who is physically uncircumcised, the Gentiles, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law, you had this? He didn't, but he's doing it because God wrote it on his heart to do it, to do what is right. You who through having, uh, will judge you, uh, who through having the letter of the law, though not having, uh, having the letter of the law, and circumcision are a transgressor of the law, end of verse 27. Basically, it does not help you. The uncircumcised, the Gentile, he is better off than you. He is better off than you because he doesn't have the law, but he's actually doing the law. He's actually obeying God. He doesn't have Moses in the Torah, in the commandments, but he's actually keeping them. Through his conscience and revelation that God has given him in his heart, he's doing it. And so this badge that you have, this, this mark that you have, doesn't do any good if you don't keep what it's supposed to mean. And Christians, this is for us now. Well, good to talk about them. You Jews. Right? But what about, or they, them Jews, what about you Christians? Are there things that God has given us for us to do that are symbols, examples, badges, you would say, that we are marked as his own people? The answer is yes. There are two specific ones through the lips of our Lord. He says, do them because you're mine. Anybody know which one of them? The Lord's table. That's right. The Lord's table says, you're mine. You've been separated to me. This is a symbol of my blood and of my body. You take it on. You take me on because you're mine. You are living out the example that you know I died for you. You know I rose from the dead for you, and I'm coming back for you. You are that living example of it. What's the second one? 
No, talk about two rituals, two baptism of water. That's right. You're going into the water. It's a symbol. Nothing magical about the water. There's nothing magical about the, the bread and the wine. There's nothing magical about it. Do it at home. You can do it here. Don't need a priest. Do it yourself. Be at home. Every, every Christian is a priest. Every, uh, every husband is a priest of his home. Baptism of water. What is supposed to be symbolized? What is supposed to symbolize? As you heard the gospel, you're dead to sin and self and alive to God in Jesus. And you come out of the water in newness of life. That's a symbol. Absolutely symbolic. There's nothing magical about the water. But there's something special about the, our faith and something special about the God who put our faith in. But those are symbolic. They represent the reality that that person is to be dead to sin, alive to Christ, and living in the memory that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead for them and constantly being fellowship with God and with other believers. But what happens if that is absolutely not present in the person's life? Meaning that they go through the rituals, they hear every Sunday, or they've gone through the baptism, they do it on the every, you know, for us, will be the last Sunday of the month, and they maybe take it during the week with their families, and what happens if that person fails to live according to the law of God? Not talking about just falling into sin, but just the reality that they don't want to do God's law. They just continue to live in rebellion against God. Well, it doesn't do you any good to take them. In fact, Paul says, very interesting in Corinthians, it actually is detrimental to you to take the Lord's Supper and sin in an unworthy manner. More of that in another time. We get to the... When, Communion next, not next Sunday, Sunday after that, sorry. But fundamentally, right, fundamentally, it's not a mental thing that God is expecting. It's not a physical thing that God is expecting. It doesn't do you good to know it, to know the law of Jews. You know, it doesn't do you any good to know the law mentally and to do the rituals physically. Because what is it at the point, verse 28, he who's not a Jew who's on outwardly, uh, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is an inward, and circumcision is that, with, of, that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Fundamentally, it is not a knowledgeable thing of the law. You know how to do good. Yep. It is also not a physical thing. You do the rituals. Good. But it, also, it has to do with the heart. It has to be a spiritual change inwardly. And he who's a real Jew is one who is circumcised in the heart, meaning that those Jews who just practice the rituals and the knowledge without the heart are simply the circumcision, and knowing the law means absolutely nothing. It won't help you in the day of wrath. It won't help you in the day of judgment. And this goes to Jews, goes to Christians a lot, right? Because Paul is dealing with Christians. He's not dealing... With Jews, per se, non-believers, he's talking to Christians. Look at this example of the Jews. What makes you a people of God wasn't necessarily the mark or the knowledge. What makes you a people of God is a circumcision of the heart. And that's what Jeremiah, we can go into Jeremiah now, but we're not. Jeremiah's message was that. He stood before the Jewish people and said, you should just not be circumcised. You would be better off uncircumcised. Because it's done you no good. But they were saying, we're circumcised, we're good, we're Abraham, we got the temple, blah, 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 blah. And he stood before the temple and says, don't come in, you're actually desecrating it. It would have been better off if you guys were uncircumcised. Uh, it's like saying, somebody stood before this church and said, you know, don't come in, it's better off if you were lost. Pastor, that's not very nice, is it? Well, if you're lost, at 
least you can know that you're lost and you can be saved. But if you think you're saved, you don't think you're lost. But you actually are because you practice those things. And all you're doing is coming in and just becoming immune. You're inoculated now. You really don't think you're lost. You think you're saved. You think you're good. And you don't come in. I mean, you come in and you're like, oh, praise the Lord. And you do. And you go outside and you do your sin. And Jeremiah said to us, don't come in. It's better for you not to come in. You're defiling the place. Now, of course, that was a temple, different than necessarily a building, but that was God's building. We desecrated. Now, let's continue. What makes a Jew a real Jew? One who is circumcised of the heart. And there's kind of an interesting here. There's a little pun here because the word Jew means one who praises. One who praises. Judah. Judah. One who praises. When Judah was born in, a, in the book of Genesis, son of Jacob, yeah, it was, it was to be, he was to be praised. He was the, the chosen tribe. Remember, the king would come from Judah. The Messiah would come from Judah. He was one to be praised. He was a praiser. He was a Jew, Judah, right? A Hebrew. But then they took the name specifically of that tribe because they were the faithful tribe. And Paul says here, a pun. Although it's written in Greek, there's a little bit of a pun here. He who's a Jew who's inwardly, Right? And circumcision is that which is the heart uh, of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not for men. His Jew, basically he would have said it, his Judah or his Jew is not from men. He's taking a, a, a poke at he's even his own people. Now, praises from men. Now, what causes praises from men? What causes praises from men? Well, the idea that, hey, he keeps the law. That's good. He must be a good guy. <laughs> Praises of men. Good guy. Man, he's awesome. Great worship song. <laughs> Not offending anybody in particular, but, you know, great message. <laughs> Praises of men. But what if, but that can get you in trouble, wouldn't it? <laughs> because if you, oh, I like that. And, uh, I like when people tell me that they like me, right? And the more they go after it, the more it's harder for them to actually seek the praises of God. Because they said, there's nothing wrong with me. Look, people like me. People applaud me. There's nothing wrong. What are you talking about? And I've known this case too. The more people are praised in this world, the harder it, harder it is for them to become Christians. The more a person is praised in this world, the harder it is, the harder it is for them to become a Christian because they get used to it and they seek after it. And it actually does the very opposite, right? And so the what we should be after is the praises of God, right? To be after is the praises of God. And it's quite interesting in the book of John, I believe it's chapter 11, it says that there were people that wanted to follow Jesus, but they were afraid of what other people were going to say in the synagogue. They were Jews because they rather love, they rather love the praises of men rather than the praises of God. And the word is Judah. There were Jews. A, tr a true Jew seeks after the praises of God. If you're really a worshiper, a worshiper of God seeks after God saying, I know you, and I know you're right, and I know you're right with me. And that's a, real, that's a real Jew who belongs to God. And so the emphasis is not the knowledge or the ritual keeping, but obviously the sp a spiritual goodness that comes from God through the Holy Spirit. That's the praises of God. Now, Paul goes on to next. Chapter 3, verse 1. There's no chapter division, right? Then what advantage has the Jew? What advantage has the Jew? Is it a benefit in circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, they are entrusted with the oracles of God. 
Now, Paul is going to explain something here. He's going to start with this one thing that we all know quite well, self-justification. And Paul is going to preach like a Jewish rabbi who's being heckled. You know what heckler, you know what heckler is? It would be nice to have hecklers here in this fellowship, wouldn't it? Yeah. And, and I mean this by this. A good heckler actually brings up a point that I think a lot of people may have. Now, I'm not talking about a foul heckler or anything like that, but somebody who just said, hey, you just said that the other day was different than that. And then we could explain, well, it means this, you know. And, yeah, that could be kind of disruptive, but in the Jewish setting, that was kind of the same way. It was just people would bring up questions. They go, Paul, what's wrong with you? What about this? And so he is preaching as if they're heckling him because he was used to it as a Jewish rabbi. And they're going to heckle him, and he's going to anticipate the heckling by answering some questions, because the first question, and you're going to see it from verse 1 through 8, a bunch of questions. What advantage has the Jew? Paul, if you say that there's no point on having the law, even though God gave it to us, there's no point on the circumcision, even though God told us to do it, if there's no advantage to that, if, if, if that really doesn't avoid us from the wrath of God, then really what's the point? <laughs> Should we just be all Gentiles? Should we all just be non-believers and things like that? Well, Paul is going to address the self-justification of the Jews because he's going to talk about how the Jews or how people, religious people, justify themselves about their issues, about the sin issue. They justify themselves. Nobody here does that, so it's good. You would not have any identity in what I'm going to talk about. So I'm going to try to explain it very carefully because none of us could identify with self-justification. Am I correct? No? All right. Let's see if this applies. So the heckler is saying, what's the point? What's the point of being a Jew? Is there any advantage? The answer, Paul says, yes. Verse 2. Great in every respect. Is there a benefit? Yes. Great. First of all, they were entrusted with the word of God. Please remember, this is a Jewish book. This is a Jewish book, the Old Testament and the New Testament, written by all Jews. Luke was a convert, Gentile, but convert. Our Messiah is a Jew. Our Jesus is a Jew. This is not a Mexican book. This is not an English book. This is not a Native American book. This has nothing to do with a Swedish book, a, a European book. It's not. It is a Jewish book. And it's been trusted to us from the Jewish people, given to us. In fact, it was a Jew who first preached the gospel. It was a Jew who first believed the gospel. It goes back a long ways, isn't it? It was a Jew who told Gentiles about the gospel of Jesus. And it was a Jew, and it will be a Jew, who will come back. In fact, today, uh, I mean that in a very, maybe it's, it's maybe shocking, but I mean that in almost respect. When we prayed today, didn't you pray to a Jewish man? You ever thought about that? You prayed to a Jewish man, Jesus, in his humanity. There's a Jewish man at the right hand of God. Like it or not, too bad. It is a Jewish man. This is at the heart of anti-Semitism. People start going, what'd you say? Well, I can go further. There'll be a Jewish man ruling the world one day. This world will be ruled by a righteous Jewish man. My Arab friends have a hard time with that. Even other Christians, they love the Lord. They just, it hits home, right? Because of the animosity still there, right? And Jesus came to bring the end to that animosity and bring us one in Christ. But yet Jesus, a Jewish man, under the law, born, born of Mary, under the law, came to fulfill the law. A Jewish man came to save us. In fact, you can say your best friend is a Jewish man. 
You can say, I was saved by a Jewish man. I owe my life to a Jewish man. Tell that to your Jewish friends. They'll be like, oh, who's that guy? I'd like to know. Then you can tell them. Simple as that. So you can tell them about that, right? But yet, the gospel was brought to us through the Jews. So there is great advantage, isn't it? They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Verse 3, what then if some did not believe their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God? Basically saying this, well, if some of the Jews didn't keep it, does that mean God is unfaithful? If the Jews are unfaithful, does that nullify God's faithfulness? Well, let's see what Paul says. Well, let me tell you. If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be one of the strongest negatives in the Greek language. Never so. Far from it. Uh, what's another word? It's translated in different ways because it's so strong. Never, never, never be. Never let it be. Uh, it's a double negative in the Greek, and you're not supposed to talk in double negatives, right? My grammar teacher told me that. But in the Greek, it's okay, because it's an emphatic, no, never, so, so to speak. But that's, that's, that's my translation. But don't follow that one. Uh, the Bible just says never. Don't let her be. But you get the flavor. Rather, let God be found true, and every man found to be a liar. As it is written... Thou, uh, that thou mightest be justified in your words and mightiest, and mightest prevail when you are judged. Now, what is this talking about here? Um, if some of them were unfaithful, does that make God unfaithful? Never. Don't, don't ever think about that. That's, that's perverted thinking, Paul is saying. Um, people say, I am not a Christian because I look at the people that go to church and I am better than them. Actually, somebody told me that in this church. But interesting, isn't it? Well, well, thank you. What was your name again? <laughs> uh, I'm better than most people in this church. That's why I don't come. Well, suit yourself. My neighbor's better than that, and he doesn't go to church. People told me that. What's wrong with that statement? Simple as that. I'll give you the answer. What standard are you judging good and bad? By what standard? Well, uh, the standard of my neighbor, well, he might be a really good guy. And he might be outwardly, probably maybe do things that we don't do. And outwardly, maybe seemingly, somebody who's better, seemingly. Because it's an, it's an outward appearance, right? It's something that you judge on the outside, something you judge by men's standards, other men, other women. But what's the standard that Christ gave us? Himself. Himself. Not each other. Therefore, claiming to be better than someone, it's claiming nothing. Claiming to be better than someone is basically saying we're all in the same boat together, right? If I judge myself by people, I may have some boasting. I may have some humbling, right? If I, if you, if I were to bring you up here, I won't, but if I were to bring you up here and says, I want you to tell me who you're better than. And then, uh, <laughs> and then you can say, well, uh, him, her, him, and, uh, you know. And I want you to tell me who you're, well, you're not as good as, uh, if I had to, uh, or, you know. You see, that's not the standard, right? Because we're judging by the standards of like, well, you know, what they do, what they said, and things like that. But the standard is always the word of God. And by that standard, I have to look at myself and say, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. That's the word of God. When you look at yourself with the standard of Christ, 
you have to look at yourself and say, depart from me, I am a sinful man. Because that's the standard. And all of us are in that same standard. All of us fall into that category because Christ is really the standard. So what does Paul use to describe this? You notice that there, if you have a, a study Bible, there's like a little indentation or it's supposed to be in italics. Uh, he quotes a verse from King David. Thou mightest be justified in your words and mightest prevail when you are judged. Where is that from? It's from King David's writing from the Psalms. What was the circumstance of that situation? And I love Paul about this because he's talking to Jews about the best Jew that ever lived at the time. Who was the best Jew that ever lived in the Old Testament? Only one person has ever told, was ever told that he was a man after God's own heart. King David. He was the best. He, the people to this day, I mean, there's a King David hotel, King David this, King David shop in Jerusalem, King David, King, you know, David Melech, David Melech, David Melech, King David, King David, right? They want to go back to King David because he's the warrior king. He brought the kingdom of God. He's going to bring it back again. They're waiting for the Messiah to be like David. I go, yep, you're right. I do expect the Messiah to be like David, but not the false one that you're going to receive, the true one that comes from heaven, right? The one born in Bethlehem. Well, King David wrote this. When did he write this? At his most lowest point of his life. What did he do? He looked across the rooftop and said to a young girl, I desire her. She was bathing. And in one full swoop, not only did he covet, did he murder, did he steal, but he committed adultery. That's probably how the Jews felt, quiet. We don't like to talk about it. The best Jew fell. The best that the Jews could offer under the law? Sorry. He fell. And what did he say? You're right, God. You are justified in your words. You're right, God. You are right when you judge. Because all of us have sinned. Even the best Jew sinned. One full soup. And I'll go on to say that he broke all of the commandments because he kept going, right? It took a year for him to repent. <clears throat> yeah. Got to come to the man's Bible study for that. The guys have done a great job. Tony and Yanni and other guys just presenting the truth about that. Uh, especially those, those really tough chapters, amazing chapters. But the most noble Jew fell. It's the best you could offer. And it's so true. There's two people in the world. Just mark this down in your mind or in your pen or your neighbor's Bible. There's two people in the, in the world. One, one who believes they're right and God is wrong. That's the person who says, if I were God, never would let that happen. If I were God, I would have done this. If I were God, God is wrong and he's not fair. I'm fair, right? The other person is the one who says, he's right. I'm wrong. David is saying that. He's right. God is right. He said we're all sinners. I can tell you firsthand, he's right. And he had mercy on me. We go on to read the psalm in David, Psalm 51 especially. Um, it, it talks about the mercy of God that he had on him. He didn't trust his own right. Like, God, you owe me something. I've been so good. And he says, no, not so good. I actually need his mercy and grace to ever stand before God. Otherwise, we're done. The best Jew said that. The best Jew at the time said that. Of course, the best Jew was Jesus. The best Jew, the best rabbi was Jesus. And he said something very similar to that. So which are you today? Are you the one that says, no, God's wrong, I'm right. If 
I were God, I would do this, 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 and this. I would never let that happen. I would never let that thing go. He's unfair. Or the one who says, God is right, I'm wrong. I'm in the wrong. He's right. I am a sinner. I do deserve his wrath, but thank God for his mercy. And so it goes on. I got about a few minutes. But if your unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath, is he not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking of human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abound to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderous report, and some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, their condemnation is just. So here's another heckler. Heckler number two, maybe from this side. The other one was from this side, this is from the other side. Now they're kind of heckling Paul. He's anticipating this, right, because he's used to it. I'm not saying it's happening. I'm just saying he's writing as if they're hecklers, and he's anticipating the question. What's the, what's the thing? Well, if, 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 if God is justified... By the sin of people, like it shows that God is really merciful and good and stuff like that, then we might as well just sin all the time. So God gets the glory. Because if having mercy on sinners brings God glory, we should just sin all the time. And then God can forgive us and God can be glorified. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? I've heard that in churches. Totally violating what Paul is saying here. What is Paul saying? Never. Never sin is sin. Sin is wrong. Even if God redeems it, it's it's still wrong. God is the only one that can take something sinful and turn it for good. Really? Yeah, look at my life. Look at your life. He's the only one that can. He could take beauty from ashes. He could work all things together for good according to his Counsel and his will and his purpose. He worked all things together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to us. He will do that. He's the only one that can. However, he doesn't say, it's okay what you did. Don't worry about it. He doesn't justify sin. For once, not God never said my sin was good or it's, you know, it was right. Never. He never says my sin was good. He doesn't justify my sins. He justifies the person. He justifies the sinner. What does he do with the sin? He judges it. But he doesn't judge the sinner because he's turned to Christ. Who does he judge? Christ. That's the righteousness of God that comes to us through Christ. He's judged. I'm justified. If you're not a Christian today, I don't know what you're waiting for. The best news you'll ever hear. He's judged by my sin so he can let me go and justify the sinner. Not justify the sin, Christ bled for that sin. So you got to remember. So how can people say, hey, this is great, man. It brings God glory. We should just keep doing it. Paul obliterates this message because it says, look, if the Jews, when they went wrong, it demonstrated his goodness. He brought them back and he had mercy in King David, right? He had mercy in King David. But the Jews were also an example of God's judgment. Right? God just didn't go, oh, Jews, you guys are good. It's okay if you sin. You're my people. I won't deal with you. I'll just forgive you. Did he ever do that? I don't have to explain it to you. Just look at the Old Testament. Twice exile, attack after attack. Read the book of Judges. Time after time, God judged them and exhorted them to be right. 
He was patient with them. As much as he's patient with you, I thank God for his patience. Thank God for his mercy. Thank God that he puts up with me and he puts up with Frank. And he was up with Paula and Phil and he puts up with us. Isn't that grant you grateful for that? I am. Totally thankful all the time. But it doesn't mean that I go right on sinning because I just want God to be nice to me. No, because God could be dreadful. God could be dreadful towards sin. He's hostile against sin. Loves the sinner. He's hostile against sin. I dare not go in that way. It's like a murder. I've heard of this murder case. It actually happened in the 80s. I think it was NYPD or LAPD. One of the big ones. Sorry, if you like them or not. Uh, There was a murder case. And the LAPD or NYPD, whatever it was, solved it. The prosecution got it. The detectives were so good. It was was really an amazing case. They found it. They got it. They imprisoned the guy. And all over the news, police department saves the day. Awesome work. Great job. Prosecutor, this and that. All the other stuff. Well, what if the, it it was a big case. What if the murderer said, Oh, man, see, my murder was good. It brought notoriety to the NYPD or LAPD. See what good I did? It actually got them a raise. You know, it notoriety all over the news. Now they people know that there are really good detectives out in the NYPD. My murder was good. You'd be crazy. You'd be like, what are you talking about? Your murder was, you murdered a person. The fact that they did a good job has nothing to do with your craziness. But it's like sinners like that. That the well, how can God be? How can God be against my sin if it brings Him glory? That He forgives. You see how warped people can be, and Paul is anticipating this. Now, verse six through eight, uh, Paul's talking about this this nonsense, right? That he's, that he's referring to, because in fact, I'm going to skip a few things. Blessed is the pastor who can go on. Uh, verse nine. What then? Are we better than they? He's talking about. Are we Jews better than they? He's saying, well, because the Jews have received the mercy of God, the law of God, marked by God, are we better than the Gentiles, the non-believers? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. Are we better off? No. Everybody simply is under the judgment of sin. The judgment of sin. All are under sin. We've shown it by Romans 1, that when the Gentiles give up or the pagans give up on God, they turn to idolatry and make up a whole other religion, and God gives them up, and the immorality happens. The Jews, through their hypocrisy and their secret sins, have also violated the word of God. And so they're just as guilty. And Paul is going to convince us. How is he going to convince us? Boy, time went fast. i got to be done. Um, Yeah. Paul is going to convince us this way. He's going to use the Bible, and he's going to go through, and I'm going to have to go through quickly. He's going to go through uh, seven verses in Psalms. Psalms! You, don't you love Psalms? The greatest book, right? Amazing book, singing and worship and adoration to God. Great book. What is he going to prove? That we're all messed up. What? I love Psalms. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I'm under his wings. Psalm 91. Yeah, you just didn't read them all. You just like the ones you like. What about the ones that tell you this? There's none unrighteous. There's no one righteous. No, not one. That's from Psalms, by the way. 
If you want to write this down, Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Psalm 36. I'll repeat it again. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Psalm 36. Lovely Psalms. Are they not so lovely? Yeah, because they tell the truth, isn't it? There's not one who understands. There's not one who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's no one who does good. There's no one, even one. Their throat is like an open grave. Their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing, bitterness. Their feet are swift to go toward blood, to shed blood, to destruction and misery are in their path. And the path of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. When was the Psalms written? At the highest peak of Jewish history. King David and their expansion of the kingdom. The best the Jews ever achieved, the highest point that they ever got to spiritually was this. That's terrible, isn't it? The Psalms were written to show their sin. At their highest, I mean, it wasn't even that they were in decadence, that they were falling into like the book of Judges. I would have understood it better. Oh, this was written in their really bad time. No, this was written in their really their peak. At their peak, God says, you do two things. You do things with your mouth and you do things with your feet. How do you do things with their mouth and your speech? James says, if you find a man or a woman who always says the right things. You found a perfect man. Ladies, you want a perfect man? Find a man who says the right things. Isn't that great? Anybody here? No? You want a perfect woman. Everybody wants a perfect woman. Find the woman who says always the right things. Ladies, any takers? No? Okay. James says, you know, you can control a lot of things. Mankind can control a lot of things. Can control boats. Can control animals. But you can tame the most shameful part of your body. You want me to show you the most shameful part of my body? People are going to go, what? Are you it's the most shameful part of my body. Why? Because by my speech, Jesus said, I would be known. Because what comes out of my mouth is what's really inside my heart. You really want to know somebody? Listen. Don't watch. Listen. Just close your eyes. Ooh. Mm. Mm. Mm-mm-mm. Ah! I can't hear anymore, right? It's been said that if everybody in the world, there will not be four friends in this world. Is that true? I think there's a lot of truth in that. If everybody knew what everybody said about each other, there wouldn't be four friends in this world. God knows what my name sounds like in your home. God knows what my name sounds like in other people's home. I don't want to know. But you don't want to know what other things other people say about you. And if you knew, you would be like, huh, that's how they really think about me? You see it? Everybody does this. Everybody does this, is what Paul is saying. The best Jews at the peak of their history were involved in heinous, sinful things. Gossip. Gossip about each other. Why? Because that's what's in their heart. Isaiah says, oh, when I saw the Lord, I knew I was in trouble. 
Why? Because my lips were filthy. I wasn't saying Isaiah was cussing everybody out all the time. He was just saying, my speech betrays me because what I say about people, it's not right before God. And Peter did the same thing. Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Right? When we know what God says, right? And this is exactly what Paul is relating to. Their speech. And then he says, their feet. Their feet commit sin. They go into bloodshed. Now, our feet was supposed to be made to go preach the gospel, right? How lovely are the feet of him who brings news, who bring good news, preaches salvation, who tread on the mountains. Because the feet is supposed to bring peace to someone. You bring them the gospel. But in their peak, they're saying, no, they actually went ahead and did murder. Not only they said things, but they also did things. So their speech and their conduct, their doing and their speech. Now, this comes to a, a real climax here, and it's this. There are two views in our world today about humanity. One is the humanistic view that says men are basically good, but do bad things. The Bible says man is basically fallen, created to be good, but fallen into sin because of disobedience. And can do good things, but they're fallen. Which one do we agree with? I'll give you one more example, but this is from the lips of our Lord. Very important. Jesus said, you who are evil know how to do good. How much more will God not give? Father, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. What a wonderful promise, isn't it? Those who ask. But it says, you who are evil. What did Jesus think about people? It says in John 2, he would not commit himself to man because he knew what was in man. What did Jesus know about us? Enough not to trust us. That's what the Bible says. Enough to say that we are evil. Now, who did Jesus agree with? The humanistic view or the Bible view? Who do you agree with? Jesus or the humanistic view? Right? It's quite interesting. And the Bible gives us that. We're basically created to be good, but we're fallen. And to summarize it, Paul says we're guilty. And Paul says, you know what, at the end of the day, actually, this was David, verse 18, there's no fear of God. There's no fear of God. If I were to ask, I was, I've been asked, but if I were to ask again, what is the number one problem in America? It's not poverty, not illiteracy, not any of those social issues. The biggest problem in America is the lack of the fear of the Lord. People find, try to find out social justice and try to do good things, try to redeem society. You're never going to do it until this is restored in the hearts of God's people. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But they say, let's look into the law. So two more verses, we're done. I promise it'll be done in minutes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law... No flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Basically this. The law is like a mirror that shows you you're dirty, but cannot clean you up. In my terminology, the law is like a thermometer who tells you you're sick, but cannot take away the fever. People go after the law and they want to do good and they want to go into behavior and they want to go and change this and change that to be sort of they deserve God 
They deserve God to forgive them. They need to deserve this. They need to deserve that. They need to, God owes me now because I did this. All the law is saying is you're sick and you're dirty. And if you go to the law and says, clean me up, it'll say, I can't. Take away the fever. Nope, I can't. Well, what can you do? I can show you you're messed up. I can tell you you need a savior. I can tell you by trying to keep it without the heart be made right, he will be standing in the wrath of God. No man will be justified in the sight of God. Therefore, my friend, there's only one solution to it all. That's the good news of next time we're together. He ends the bad news. That took about six weeks, (laughs) and you put up with it. But you won't know the need for the good news unless you have the bad news. The good news is, yes, you can be justified. You can be made right apart from you. Apart from the law of God, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, you have to start with faith. You begin by trusting Jesus for what he did for you. What the law could not do, God has done by sending his son to die in your place. The law couldn't make you righteous. You couldn't make you righteous. You just get more dirty. Because the more you try to keep the law, the more it shows that you couldn't and that you can't and that you won't ever. But then God comes into your heart and says, I could make you righteous. You just have to admit that I'm right. And you have to admit that you're wrong. You have to admit that you're dirty so I can make you clean. You have to admit that you're wrong so I can make you right. And there's only one way to do it. Faith. To trust God that he sent Jesus in your place to take away your sin. And through his death and resurrection, he'll give you his righteousness and you'll be made born again. A new creation in Jesus. Through faith. And you go on with faith. And you don't stop until you're at the pearly gates. Take something from John Bunyan. You don't stop until you get to the celestial city. That's how you live by faith. You start, continue, you'll end up right at the feet of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for turbulent news. Certainly convicting news that all have sinned, that all have fallen short of God's glory. Oh, Lord, you are right. Oh, Jesus, you are correct. Lord, you would be right to judge me based on your law, based on your own goodness and righteousness. You are justified in judging me. But, Lord, you loved us so much that you decided to judge your own son instead of us so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, we will never be able to repay you for what you did. But Lord, we thank you that in Christ Jesus, we are made right. Only in him. Please, Lord, help us abandon any pursuit of self-righteousness or self-justification or any self-interest that we may have. And bow at your feet, Lord ask you for your grace and mercy. Only through that way can we may be made right with you. So please, Lord, thank you for this bad news 
Because the good news is so sweet. It's so good. It's so needed. And help us, Lord, to live in that good news. And to take the good news to others that need the good news. The good news that Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. In his name we pray. Amen.